Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Here's an interesting fact for you. There are nearly one million new books published in the U.S. alone every year. One million. So if you like to read, how do you choose what you're going to read? Well, that's where Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews comes in. You see, Kirkus has been one of the top book review publications for over 80 years. They do a deep dive on thousands of titles every year, including interviewing best-selling authors and telling you what might be the hot new release before everyone else knows. So figure out what your next read is going to be. Download Fully Booked right now on the Podcast One app at Apple Podcasts or at PodcastOne.com. Podcast One presents Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze, an entertaining behind-the-scenes look at the world of food, where you'll hear from anyone and everyone in the culinary industry, including restaurateurs, TV hosts, famous chefs, producers of your favorite cooking shows, and many more. Now, here's your host, Richard Blaze. Hey everyone, this is Starving for Attention, a podcast devoted to shining a light on the nooks and crevices of the food world. We're going to get under that crackly, charred, and sweet surface of the proverbial creme brulee that is the food world. Uh, and we're going to get to that unctuous, creamy, custardy center of it all. Oh. Although, I, you know, I don't think you want your creme brulee to be unctuous. No, we looked it up. No, because I think unctuous means oily and greasy. Yeah. So if you had an unctuous creme brulee, that would be a horrible thing. Something went wrong. It would be, it would yeah. be bad. It sounded good, though. It is a word that gets used a lot in food television. Uh, we're going to be talking to everybody who's anybody and maybe even a few nobodies. Uh, speaking of which, I'm Richard Blaze, uh, your host, and I'm joined in the walk-in today. And that's right, Kitchen Speak, the walk-in for a place, a gossipy safe place. And I'm joined by Jasmine. Hey. And uh, producer Heather. Howdy. Right. So, I mean, big day. First episode of the pod. Huge. I would say that I've always wanted to do something. It's the pilot. I, I don't know if on a podcast if you can say it's a pilot episode, but I've always had this vision and I've, I've actually written scripts where it's like open uh, and you hear the clicking noise, like, like the really annoying mm-hmm. sound of like a stove right. beginning to light and the camera's right on the flame and it pulls back in this, this little blue flame and then poof, the flame starts. So I've always wanted to do an episode called Pilot Light. Very like artistic. In the, very artistic. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's really creative, although I also feel like it might actually be the open of Top Chef. <laughs> right? I think it is. So like I, it's like one of those ideas like you think you created right. it, but actually people have been Genius. doing it the whole time. Yeah. Um, but because it's first episode, day of first, first guest coming in, um, I think it's important to talk about like your first jobs. First job in the food world. My first job, somewhat documented, but maybe not, um, was at a little fast food restaurant. I don't know if you've heard of it. A little bistro. A tiny little fast food hamburger restaurant called McDonald's, <laughs> which I also – I have to say McDonald's. I don't like saying Mickey D's. Like yeah. I just – I like to respect the brand at least and call it McDonald's. It's got a little bit more formality to it. Um, but I was the poissonnier at my local McDonald's and poissonnier means fish cook. So this is a very prestigious position at a fast food hamburger restaurant that arguably serves one seafood item. Arguably. Arguably. Is it arguably there's only one or is it arguably that it's seafood? Uh, The latter. Okay. I think it is. (laughs) Um, And the first batch of filet of fish that I sent out, I actually forgot to put the top buns on that batch. Mm. Uh, So I was being like creative and avant-garde well before I knew that that was actually uh, my calling. And it also caused um, quite a big uh, backup at the drive-thru. Duh. I remember I got in so much trouble. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. no tops. Open faced filet yeah. of fish sandwiches. Now, your first job, you were a shot girl, right? <laughs> that was not my first job. <laughs> I mean, I was like 14, my first. So you're saying I'm a shot girl at, at 14. You're from Florida. Okay. I hear where you're going. But you weren't, okay, I don't know why I thought that. You weren't a shot girl. No, I was a cashier. In a you were ca- store. But you had some job at a cl- nightclub or something like that early on, yeah. some food I beverage a, job. I was a beer tub girl. Oh, you were a beer tub girl. I was. Which is high, in lower than a uh, shot girl. Uh, it is higher. I would argue uh, that you're, you kind of are your own service station. So okay, you know. all right. So it goes: beer tub girl, uh, bar no, no, back, no, no. No, uh, no, shot girl, no, no. Uh, cocktail no. waitress, <laughs> oh, and then eventually adult dancer. Wait, yeah. <laughs> I think that's where it ends. That's the path. Yeah. I think, but that wasn't what you did. No, no, no. So you were a cashier. I was a cashier at a grocery store. At just a, like a local sort of mom and pop sort of place. Job. No, it was a it was a chain in Florida. I don't think it's I think it's defunct now, but. Chain, yeah. Did you love it? Because I loved my first job. I would go home with a 20-piece chicken McNugget, and I was just, like, so happy and it was, chubby. It was good. I mean, I just I think it was good experience. I learned a lot. What did you learn? Well, I mean, it's first job in food, right? So uh, I learned a lot of produce codes. Did you, did you learn produce codes? You still yeah, remember you had, any of them? You had to be, like, quizzed on them. Okay. Um, you, do you remember any of them? Yeah. Bananas. 4011. Are you sure? Are you um, just making up numbers? I, I'll bet you. Iceberg lettuce. No, that, that was wrapped in plastic. Okay, so basically you only remembered the produce code of bananas. But today is a day of firsts. Uh, we have our first guest coming in. I'm kind yeah. of excited. We're going big on our first. And I would say 10 years ago that this person, I would say the enemy was maybe the enemy maybe. as a chef. Yeah. I would say that that could be a thing. But we're going big. Uh, we're bringing her in in a second. But first, Jasmine, I'm going to do uh, my first ad read. Cool. I'm really sure. excited about this. Yeah. Um, hey, do you love authentic Mexican food and also a good Jewish delicatessen? Sure. Yeah, these are two of my favorite things. Well, you should check out one of my favorite restaurants, classic restaurant here in Los Angeles, or you can stop by their new uh, New York location. Upper um, West Side? Lower East Side, actually. <laughs> Lower East Side. Uh, ODM is the name of the restaurant. You can try some of their favorite Mexican-Jewish mashup dishes like, um, you know, soft brisket tacos al rabbi with pickled celery and horseradish crema. Mm, or yeah. maybe you're a seafood lover uh, and you like maybe gefilte fish tacos. Or maybe it's a wintry day. You're looking for something to soothe your soul. Or maybe it's a hangover and you want some matzo ball Pozole, one of my favorite dishes. This is one of my all-time favorite restaurants, everyone. They do the best Mexican-Jewish fusion food there is. And it's Oy Dios Mios, where the Lower East Side meets East L.A. Again, that's Oy Dios Mios, where the Lower East Side meets East L.A. And uh, you can use our promo code. Our promo code is FAKEAD um, because that doesn't exist. Um, but if you do use our promo code FAKEAD at Mios, they'll send out some tortilla tri- chips that were fried in schmaltz with some guacamole that um, I was going to say had guacamole, yeah. but you can't. I, I think no. it's not kosher, Mm-mm. foie gras. Um, so it's chicken liver guacamole. But one of my favorite restaurants. Okay, everyone, we're back. Uh, and this is big. We're back. Uh, first guest on Starving for Attention. We're bringing in a true food. I mean, this person, food knowledge juggernaut, uh, a foster cat mom. Uh, an amazing writer, uh, an awesome person, uh, and also a James Beard Award-winning writer. I got to say that again. Writer. A James. I got really New York there. <laughs> a James Beard Award-winning writer. Everyone, Besha Rodell. Mm-hmm. Besha, Hi. how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for sitting through that that horrible fake ad. That's okay. By the way, um, which I think actually I ran that that sort of concept by you at one point. Um, of the fake ad. The fake. I think. I think because there's in full disclosure. 
the actual concept. The actual right? concepts, right? Because these are fake ads, but they're also like me pitching concepts to people. <laughs> right. Um, full disclosure, at one point, I wrote like a little weekly blog. I like to call it an essay. It was a column. You were a full-fledged columnist. It ran in print. Wow. It was that. a column. It was not a blog. Oh, my gosh. It was a column. Even, look at that. I'm, blo- I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> I'm blown because I didn't know if you'd even remember. Oh, of course I remember. Uh, but you were my editor. And uh-huh. you, you honestly, like, you put the wind beneath my wings. Wow. Like, you gave me confidence. Uh, and you're it was a good kind of writer. Oh, you're, well, I mean, listen. I mean, coming from you, that is amazing. Uh, but I did want to get it out there that we have uh, a history. We have a long history. A long history. And then also, as a critic, you have said some really nice things about me and some not so nice things about me. I was thinking about it. I think that it's possible that I have reviewed your restaurants more than any other chef. Not if you include like John and Vinny and all the places they own, right? but just in terms of like the executive chef is this one person. I think because I think I did three full starred reviews of places that maybe even four and so I don't think that I don't think that there's anybody no. else that I have done that many that's a, I mean I'm honored yeah. I also feel like that gives me some good street cred <laughs> uh, for sure and also I'm sure that the starred reviews you gave me uh, just went descending they just kept, yeah, they they just kept going down now I'm in front of a microphone I don't remember but I, I would I would say that that might have been the case but before we get into like really what you do in your writing mm-hmm. there's something that I think is really I mentioned in, in the introduction you're a foster cat mom I am, yes. Um, my cat, my family cat, um, slipped out the window in Silver Lake uh, about a year ago, and we think she got eaten by a coyote. Oh um, and she was kind of like the, um, you know, she was the soul of our family. She was like, we, we all were obsessed with this cat, and everybody in our neighborhood was obsessed with this cat. She was amazing. Um, and we just didn't feel, like, ready to go out and get a new cat, you know, just yeah. didn't feel right so but we really missed having kitties in our life and um so we decided to start fostering and um we've been doing that now for a year and um we have new kittens through every you know six weeks or so and then we raise them and um get them ready to go get all their shots and then we adopt them out well it's kind of amazing so i have to admit jasmine won't admit it uh but basically jasmine spends a couple minutes every night um stalking you uh and looking at your cats one cat in particular i came home one night you know which one i know i'm obsessed with her too the mustache cat this is a cat with a mustache she has a a mustache (laughs) she's so fluffy Oh my she god! Um, I even showed the kid. I usually don't show the kids right. things like that because then it'll just <laughs> propagate them asking for it all the time. But I actually did show my kids, and they were yeah, it's an yeah. adorable. And the backstory also is that we, when we came in the studio today, um, we actually sent an email to the folks at Podcast One, and we said, "Hey, uh, can we bring a cat in?" And <laughs> cats allowed? Are the cats I, allowed? I, and I bet if we ask Heather, I bet it's one of the weirdest asks they've ever gotten. Heather, one of the weirdest asks, right? Can we bring a cat in studio with us? Um, I can't. Can't say that I've ever seen that in email form at the studio. <laughs> Amazing! So like yes. we we are being unique right off the bat. Yeah. But the best was your uh, the response, which was, <laughs> if it's an emergency, sure. <laughs> Which then we started crafting. What could an emergency be that would necessitate an emergency you know, bring cat? Your cat. Yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. Well, actually, Norma Jean—that is her name, Norma yeah. Jean. Mm-hmm. She, I have been saying that she should be an emotional support animal because she's really? so like floppy and just mm-hmm. like lies on your heart and purrs. Like she just oh, is adorable, cute. and she isn't like scratchy or she was bottle fed, which means that she thinks everyone is her mom. So yeah. she's just like, you know, I. Ho- so maybe if I got her certified to be an emotional support pet, and then yeah. I said. 
that I needed See? her for to get me through a podcast, then maybe that is that would qualify as. Got emergency. it. So if people send us uh, emails at starvingforpod at gmail dot com, uh, we can connect them with you and possibly uh, we can. <laughs> they better we can, get on it. Yeah, yeah, she's going kids. soon. She's yeah, especially. Yeah. Well, we might take the mustache, uh, yeah. uh, Norma Jean, home tonight. <laughs> I'm telling you, if she came here today, it's a candle in the wind. Tough, yeah. yeah, I tough think. Not to take her home. Um, okay, so that's uh, some of the fun stuff. Um, but we're talking about first today. You're a first guest. Mm-hmm. So what was your sort of first food job? I was a barista in a cafe owned by the Albanian mafia in Tarrytown, New York. Oh. Yes. <laughs> I knew this was going to get good. Oh, that is good. Like you're, um, which is also, I want that to be like my Twitter bio. Yeah. I, or it, it a should barista be... at the Albanian mafia cafe. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of, so, so what kind of introduction were you into? Yeah, it was really good. I mean, um, Tarrytown at the time, that's where I went to high school uh, and it wasn't nearly as kind of trendy as it is now. I think a lot of people moved from Brooklyn into Westchester when they started having kids, and Tarrytown has good schools, so it's become this kind of twee wonderland up there. But at the time, it was still, the GM plant was there, and so it was still quite blue-collar, and um, and there was a lot of diners, also owned by various mafia factions. <laughs> and um, and this was kind of the first fancy coffee house that came to town. Now, and, um, it was, it, so it was very exciting for me. It was kind of my first introduction into being obsessive about a food thing outside of just cooking at home. You know, my family's big into food, but, um, but it, you know, it got me really dorky about, and, and this was you know, first wave of fancy coffee houses. So it wasn't like, you know, single origin beans or anything like that. It was just how to make a good shot of espresso. Which is kind of amazing. So I just, embarrassingly, I just took a quick little crash course at Stumptown up in Portland. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away by the precision of being a barista. And like, you know, people think that I'm all molecular gastronomy, but they are so precise Mm -hmm. with every little thing they do and every number and every weight and uh, the pressure of the bars, all of that. So when you were doing, was it that serious or this was just? Um, It was very much about, yes, the grind and, you know, adjusting it for the humidity that day and all of that stuff. And, you know, these guys um, who owned it, I mean, I think it was probably a money laundering thing, but they also were pretty serious about coffee. Um, And they brought in people to train us. And, um, you know, I was there for the opening. So we went through weeks of training where we just had to pull like one shot after another after another until we got it right. And, um, you know, it's one of those funny things, I think, maybe as a chef you would understand this if you go to a place and you get a piece of fish and it's not cooked right you just kind of want to go back there and do it yourself (laughs) i feel that way in cafes all the time i'm so annoying i try not to be an annoying customer but i'm so annoying in in coffee shops because (laughs) i want it a specific way and i know i could just go back there and do it myself okay so again embarrassing but this has just happened to me because now i've taken this class and i just had this uh, wet cappuccino which is now my drink because Mm -hmm. i feel like it's an official drink for someone who spent any time learning how to be a barista and I had one yesterday and I was like the milk was too hot yeah and it got me really upset so I I get it so so you're a barista in Tarrytown New York Mm -hmm. and how does that end up leading you to becoming one of the best food writers Uh. in the United States if not the world (laughs) Um, that is a really long story I'll try to make the short version of it but I spent from there through you know, I guess I was 19 or 20 when I got that job. Um, through my mid-20s, 
um, working in various forms of the food business. I worked for Whole Foods for a while. I, they had a cafe in their um, Chapel Hill, North Carolina store called Penguins that I um, helped to manage. And then I went to waiting tables. I waited tables in Chapel Hill. And then I went to college. I went to college late for various number of reasons, being a teenage delinquent being the biggest one. Um, but uh, so I went to college in New York and um, I had actually transitioned at that point to back of the house. I was working in kitchens in Chapel Hill um, and my boyfriend at the time uh, was also, was a line cook. And um, when we moved to New York, we couldn't afford New York rent on two line cook salaries. So I went back to front of the house and waited tables um, in Brooklyn and then in um, Manhattan and went to school for writing and literature. And eventually, you know, I was working... Um, <laughs> I, I was waiting tables at night, going to school during the day. I had an internship at Time Out New York. I was like seven days a week, full force. And I eventually started working for literary agencies because um, kind of my other big writing love is is fiction and kind of creative nonfiction. And, um, but I found myself, even when I didn't need to anymore, like taking shifts at the restaurant again <laughs> because I missed Your that hook. conversation. You know, I just – I really loved – I was a good waitress, and I loved talking to people about food and wine, and um, I was lucky enough to work in restaurants that really encouraged that. Um, and so I realized that I probably needed to uh, merge these two things that it, in my life, the writing and the food. And also, I think in journalism – you have to know about something. It's not enough to be like, I am a good writer and I can write. You know, you really have to have a, um, a specific passion, I think. And when people say, well, should I go to grad school for journalism? I'm kind of like, no, go to grad school for Southeast Asian studies and right. then write about that. You know what I mean? Like figure okay. out what you're passionate about and then um, learn everything you can about that thing and then become a writer in that area. I think that that's the smartest thing. So anyway... Then I got knocked up, <laughs> um, which I was not, you know, planning to do. And um, we moved back to North Carolina to be near my uh, partner's family and my family too. Um, and I started writing for uh, the little alt weekly in Durham, North Carolina, um, the Independent Weekly, and did a restaurant column for them for a couple of years. And I had the um, opportunity to write this story about tr the truffle farming industry in North Carolina, which was really interesting at the time because they were trying to get tobacco farmers to transition to truffles, which obviously hasn't really worked out right. in the long run, but it was an interesting story. And that got some national attention. I won a couple of awards for it. And through those awards, that was um, AFJ, I met some, you know, people bigger in the scene. And then also Bill Addison, who was working at the time at Creative Loafing in Atlanta, did a big story about all of the big chefs of the Southeast. And he came to North Carolina to eat at the Magnolia Grill. And he didn't know anybody there. So he called the Alt Weekly in Durham and said, who's your food writer? And they put him in touch with me. And he took me out to dinner. Um, and that was... Oh, almost thirteen years ago, twelve years ago. So, um, how, how did you get that first the, the first job for actually being a critic with seemingly not a lot yeah, of experience? Well, that's what happened was because I became friendly with Bill, um, and 
when he moved to the San Francisco Chronicle, Creative Loafing was having a really hard time finding somebody to replace him. And I saw that and I called him. And at that point, I had been applying for these kinds of jobs all over the place. You know, I wasn't happy in North Carolina. I wanted to get out of there. And there wasn't a critic position there for me or a, or a full-time position even in food writing. Um, and he said, oh, yeah, I didn't think that you would want to move. And I was like, yeah, I want to move. <laughs> and so, yeah, they they flew me to Atlanta and it happened very quickly. It was very, it was, it was crazy. But um, I guess um, you could tell, I think, from my writing that I wanted to do criticism. I just wasn't, I didn't have the budget. I didn't have the, you know. The, so is that, is that, is that because you're snarky basically? <laughs> is like, there's a, is there a, I think it's because, and I think a lot of people get into criticism for this reason, and I'm not sure it's actually a good reason, honestly, but I think it's because having worked in restaurants and having a cook, a line cook for a partner, um, you spend all your time in restaurants being like, I mean, you, you can't turn that thing off when you're a restaurant manager or, or a chef. You, you are constantly thinking about and critiquing the food. So I just felt like I had a lot to say um, about you know, what was good or bad in restaurants. It makes so much sense because I remember as a younger chef and when we first started hearing about you and I first first started reading your work, it seemed like you were writing from the inside of the kitchen. It was almost like who's talking to the who's talking to the writer? You know, it's like it's like leaked information from inside uh the you know, it was coming from inside and that's because you were working in the industry. Right. Yeah, I've always it's hard now. I mean I've been doing this for eleven years and it's hard for me to maintain that, I think. Um, because I'm so far from that world now, but I still try. I still try to think of it from an industry perspective, in part because there is no more passionate um, critics out there than line cooks. I mean, line cooks, they're still not making any money. They spend all their money on eating out. They work so hard. And if somebody else is doing it crappy, <laughs> it's just like a personal affront to them. So like when I think about my audience, that's really who I think about is, is line cooks, even though, again, yeah, traditionally, critics are the enemy of line cooks. But... Right. And generally, line cooks, like we're, we're jaded and disgruntled, right? Mm -hmm. Most like nothing's ever good enough. You know this. Keep Keeping on the theme of first, do you remember your first review? The first I review. I do. Wrote? It was a bed in oh <laughs> that gosh. restaurant bed that started oh in. Gosh. Did it start in Miami? And then it was like yeah, on Sex in the City. Yeah, it was on Sex in the City. And it just had opened in Atlanta when I got there. Oh, and um, oh, that was going to be one of my fake ad reads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, no, but that was actually a restaurant that exists. So uh, I remember the theme. You would sit in a large bed with a group of people, yes. and servers would bring out trays of food to you. Yes. Yeah. And I was really disturbed. I don't remember much about it, but I remember there was that um, Atlanta at the time had a very active kind of food uh, chat room kind oh, of yeah. culture. And they did yeah. a Q&A thing with me and the guy gave me um, it was either my password or my or my username was Smelly Socks because I had complained about how when you sit and eat in bed like in this bed your feet are next to the food and it's disgusting. Right. <laughs> I was like I don't want to have my you know crappy tuna tata next to my husband's smelly socks. So as a young writer, are you just licking your chops when you know that that's your first assignment? Because you know it's it's going to be bad, right? I, I guess I thought, yeah, I I think so. And, and at that point in my career, I was much more 
uh, interested in in writing bad reviews of places. That's not yeah. something that I am as as interested. I mean, still, if it's deserved, that's what I'll do. But you know, that's a question I wanted to ask as just someone who likes to read. Um, reviews is I feel like it's 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 got to be a little bit more fun to either write something that's amazing a four star or like a really bad review but most of the time you're probably writing in the middle it's true yeah um, and m- yeah most things are in the middle and it's very very it becomes very difficult to kind of say yeah this place is fine you should eat there if you want like that could literally be half of my reviews <laughs> yeah sure if you like this kind of thing whatever do you like beet salads yeah exactly. this- Place is great for you. Yeah. And I say that as someone who has a beet salad on the menu. Yes. But um, that's that's kind of crazy. So your first review is of bed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you sort of you're, – you're making this name for yourself in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I'm a chef there at the time. Mm-hmm. And you're known to like – you have claws. Mm-hmm. Like people know that you are sort of now the checks and balances, I believe, of that city, which you had mentioned Bill Addison. Uh, but there's so many great writers. I feel like in that community still, it was a hardcore community. It was one yeah. of the best communities of I writers. I don't think a lot of people know that. I mean, there's a lot of great writers that came through Atlanta or are still there. I mean, exactly. I agree. Yeah, I was just talking about this the other day to um, somebody because um, I guess somebody there, I'm not even sure if it's public information yet or not, but the Atlanta magazine is killing its reviews. It's not going to have reviews anymore. Really? Um, and so they... You know, I was talking to somebody about this, whether this is a good or bad thing, and I, I was saying that at the time when Bill Addison, John Kessler, and I were all in Atlanta writing from very different viewpoints, I felt like the conversation was so good then and so robust. Yeah. And and I'm not – I don't want to sound like I'm taking credit for it, but I'm not – but I don't think that it's completely um, coincidental that that era is also when Atlanta really found its voice culinarily on the national scene. I, feel I, like I think it's true because yeah. you need the writers mm-hmm. that are also writing true things, not just glossy little well, it's, cover it's stories. checks and balances, like you said. It, it keeps everybody so pushing. I have a question, though. So when you're in that moment, you have a couple of other writers in the same city. I'm sure you do right now in Los Angeles that you respect and you know that there's a new restaurant that opens and you're all going to drop an article about this. You're all going to review it. Is there any sort of like um, inside baseball like discussion about it? I know sometimes you end up eating at the same meal, which always would freak me out. Right. When like two of you are at one table, we think, and then, oh, sneak Sneak, sneak attack. The third uh, critic has just showed up now isn't in the corner. Do you guys do that intentional? Do you plan these attacks? Bill and John and I used to be evil. Like yes. we would go in together <laughs> yeah. in oh, yeah. one yeah. table yeah. and oh. just watch people freak. But that was – yeah. That's – I mean I don't um, – I'm – you know, those guys are two of my best friends and have been since I hit Atlanta pretty much. I don't know Jonathan Gold nearly as well. And so I don't talk to him about it at all. Um, I did talk some to Bill and John, but I tried to avoid it until after the writing was done. I just didn't want to be influenced by them. I'm pretty good at not being influenced by anybody, but sometimes they're two really smart dudes and they would say something. I'd be like, huh, that's an interesting thing. And that that's okay. But then the reviews do, you know, they can be too similar. And, 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 and usually it's similar because you're all uh, qualified and they're, you're having the same experience. But I always know as a restaurateur, it's like, wow, if that first one, you know, the first one sets the tone almost. And mm-hmm. it's so important. You know, you mentioned we would all come in and sit at the same table. But here's something about you that's very different than most critics. Mm-hmm. People still don't know what you look like. I think that <laughs> yeah. that's true to a certain extent. I mean, in 
both cities that I've worked in, um, I think I would say 50 to 60 percent of the well-known important chefs in town, if you take the top 20 of them, probably do know me. Um, and some of them I know well enough to say hi to if I see them. You know, I try hard to avoid it, but I also have a very weird name and I have, you know, a bit of an accent. And the anonymity thing for me is really important, but, but being a decent human is better and so i'm not going to like lie to somebody's face you know i've sure. met people and you know you're you're at an event and they say hi i'm so and so i'm not gonna you know say i'm somebody else or i try to not be rude so but you value that i do value it and and the more important thing honestly is that wait staff don't know what i look like because the chef isn't usually in the restaurant or if he is i mean he's in the restaurant but he's in the kitchen even under circumstances where I have known the chef well and um, know that they know what I look like and know that they're looking out for me, I feel like it is possible for me sometimes to get into that restaurant, sit with my back to the dining room and get one good visit in, you know, where uh, nobody noticed the, that I'm there. Right. Well, I mean, it causes quite a stir, of course, in restaurants. And we have, um, uh, you know, especially with you, when you first came to town, you know, everyone has this story of who this person, oh, well, she's got a South African accent. You're right. Australian, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Um, oh, she's from New York. She lived in the South. Um, she looks, you know, one person says, oh, she looks like Macy Gray. Mm-hmm. The other person, it's, oh, no, she looks like Susan Sarandon. And you're like, and like you sort of have this now, like, mythical creature that becomes the <laughs> food critic no one knows what the critic looks like but everyone's trying to find out who it is mm-hmm. um, to the point where you're actually looking at orders from like the night before you're like no a food critic would never order the beet salad <laughs> <laughs> we, we know that that's not them but restaurants go through painstaking um, you know work to try and get pictures and to document what critics look like I mean I even recently just did a show and there were like 50 critics on the show and as part of the casting was we got their little pictures mm-hmm. and they were all you know uh, most people know what they look like like, but I took that little casting sheet and I put it on the wall of my restaurant in the office because uh, it helps. Do you know when someone has recognized? Like, do you get different service? Basically, yes. Uh, I, it's it's almost a tonal change, yeah. and um, I can feel the energy in the room shift. And I really hate it. I know there are some critics that love that kind of like you walk in and the tone shifts and there's a power play there, and I hate it. I mean, I like to eat out, and I and especially in my early visits to a restaurant for a review, I'm really trying to just be like, what's it like to eat at this place? How does it feel? You know, I'm not getting down to the nitty gritty until probably later. And so that is skewed by that feeling that you're making people nervous or that they're being overly obsequious or whatever. Um, You know, I'm of mixed mind. I kind of almost prefer it when... Um, it's just kind of up front. <laughs> you know, I know that there's a dance that happens where they're supposed to pretend they don't know you're there and you're supposed to pretend that. And that's fine. I, I appreciate that in some senses. But I was actually just a couple nights ago at a restaurant and the chef knew I was there and he just walked up and said, you know, hi, how's it going? You know, and, best way and to that's do it, fine. Right? Yeah. I, I, I almost prefer that. It's like right. everything's out in the open. We know it's fine. Okay. Like, like we can all move on now. But um, do I get different service? Sometimes, yeah. But sometimes I think I get worse service because of it because I make people nervous. Uh, one of my favorite um, pieces that you wrote, I won't mention what restaurant it was about, was where you basically broke down that like a dining room has like different sections of class service, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're not famous or they don't know you're a writer, that there's sort of the seat by the bathroom in the back of the plane in restaurants. And you broke that down. You're not afraid to go to some of those uh, places. No, not at all. And um, I think that that's changing. I mean, you know, the most 
famous review of all time, probably outside of maybe some newer Pete Wells ones, was the one where Ruth Rachel went to a restaurant once in disguise and once as herself and got two very different uh, experiences and actually wrote two different reviews from the two point of views yeah. of the of the different customers that she was playing. And I think that that's changed. I think that most good restaurants these days don't have that anymore. Um, certainly in the US and Europe, it's still very much like that. But um, So it always shocks me when you can tell that that's what's going on, that, that they're not treating everybody like their dollar is the same dollar, because it's the same dollar. Now, um, this is something that you do pretty much every day of your working life. Is there a fatigue to being a critic? Absolutely. Okay. Um, it's one of those things that I try not to complain about because it's, <laughs> it's a little stupid to complain about. I make the joke that, like, yes, it gets tiring. Yes, I would rather eat at home with my family a lot of times. You know, I have a son who um, has grown up with this his entire life. He has never had a mom yeah. who's home for dinner, really. Um, and But it's better than working for a living. That's yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, as a job, it's great. As a lifestyle, it does. It gets it gets tiring and um, it's unhealthy. There's all kinds of. Uh, so stuff. that's interesting. I was saying, like, is there a is there a training process for it? So if you say it's unhealthy, like I'm, I'm assuming it changes the way you eat. Maybe during the day, if you know you have a lunch and a dinner. Yeah, that's your absolutely. Job. I mean, it's. I feel like I've always had a fairly healthy relationship to food, and criticism is the one thing that has skewed that a little bit. In that mm-hmm. I try not to eat very much when I'm not working because otherwise I would weigh 700 pounds. Mm-hmm. And I also, you know, exercise a ton and I don't look like I exercise a ton you know I I swim and have you know personal trainers and stuff like that and um and so I just have to be thinking about that all the time because I don't want um to have a heart attack in years, you know? Well, well, I mean, listen, having a personal trainer and all that sounds very L.A. of you, by the way. (laughs) I actually started in Atlanta. (laughs) This is Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze. The advanced specialists at the Center for Innovative GYN Care developed groundbreaking minimally invasive techniques to treat fibroids, endometriosis, and other GYN conditions. In response to growing concerns over the coronavirus, CIGC now offers e-visits. We know GYN conditions don't stop affecting your life. CIGC wants to be here for you as you seek options to find relief from debilitating gynecologic symptoms such as abnormal bleeding and pelvic pain. With telemedicine options now available, book a consultation consultation at InnovativeGYN.com or call 888-SURGERY. That's InnovativeGYN.com or 888-SURGERY. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash grad school. Hi, guys. It's Becca Tobin, Kelsey Knight, and Jack Vanek. And we are the Lady Gang, as in the Lady Gang podcast. And this summer, we have something extra special, not just celebrity interviews, but we are helping you Lady Gang your life slash get your together. What do we have coming up, Kelsey? Hormone expert, nutrition expert, fitness expert, sex expert, dermatologists, people shooting up your faces with syringes telling us what it's all about. It's all the important things you need to lady gang your life. Every Tuesday on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. 
Now back to Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze. Now listen, you went from Atlanta to L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember that was just like a big moment in it. Like you just kind of disappeared. It was a blow. Like I really feel like it was, uh, you know, and then I left. Right. Well, yeah, why why would I stay? Well, well, yeah, you just threw it in. You're like, well, this is it. This is gotta it. Leave, <laughs> gotta leave now. <laughs> Going to California. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, I mean, I had applied for the job in L.A. as soon as I heard that Jonathan was leaving. Obviously, it's one of those kind of dream jobs for a critic. And. Um, but I actually got laid off before I got this job. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Creative Loafing got bought. And as often happens when a media company is bought, they were looking for ways to cut ahead of the sale so that the bottom line looked much better. And we had a new editor who um, I won't say anything about because I don't have anything nice to say. And um, <laughs> and he just was like, oh, the easy way. I know other editors in that chain who, like, trimmed at all the little corners and made really good decisions. And he just was like, oh, this is an easy line item. We'll get rid of these three people. So it was really devastating for me. And, um, and the city was wonderful. I mean, I, God bless Atlanta. They, people were so pissed off on my account and um but this job ended up coming through i I was offered another job um in atlanta and hadn't heard from the folks out here and called them up and said i'm going to take this job i just want to make sure you're not you know considering me because i haven't heard from you so i'm assuming you're not and again from there it went very quickly they flew me out here they offered me the job and and arguably you come out to la in like the beginning of a true renaissance like in both cities Atlanta and LA you seem to be in the right place at the right time it has been I've been very very lucky in that sense Um, yeah LA I mean LA has always had great food I think uh, the thing that has happened here and started happening right before I got here was this kind of thing of young children of immigrants who had gone through formal chef training bringing both sides of their knowledge to things so people like Roy Choi people like Chris Yambarung um, and people stopped being so snobby about LA I mean some of it is that the food got demonstrably better and more exciting and less derivative of other cities. I think Atlanta had this problem too where they were trying to be Miami or they were trying to be Las Vegas, but they don't have a beach and they don't have a casino and you know. Um and I think LA, you know, had some of that those issues where they did they want to be San Francisco, did they want to be Las Vegas? Like um and really got a point of view of of their own. But I also think it's partially just that people stopped being so snobby about it, you know, and the kind of bastion of food media is really in New York and they've always looked down on LA and then also San Francisco has always looked down on LA so um, I'm not sure what the cultural change was to make people stop paying attention yeah which also that's I mean really regardless of whatever city you're in that's always so silly to me especially when we're talking about California and I, like I live in San Diego right so you're talking about San Francisco looking down on LA and then LA looks down on San Diego and then uh, Baja looks down on San Diego right. and, and, and Orange County too <laughs> and Orange County right so but it's like hey it's the same workforce the ingredients are the same. It shouldn't really make a difference. It's truly elitism, I yeah. believe. No, it is. It is. And it's um, the need to feel important. And also, I do think that there's a real issue in the New York food world where it's it's laziness. It's easier to look in your own backyard and know everything about what you're writing about. It's much harder to go into a culture in a city that you don't know that much about. Yeah. And I think even one a really uh, good friend of mine, really amazing New York City chef, I remember one time telling him, no, we strawberries sometimes like in February or you know like that happens here and they're like no I don't believe that like well no you should you should come out here <laughs> right. our seasons are different um, all right so 
now you're you know known as being like the best critic in uh, certain. I mean, California, maybe. I mean, the, the country. I, I, I mean, you, I don't. I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. One of the few true restaurant critics is being a restaurant cricket critic. Is it an endangered species? Um. Yes and no. I mean, sure. The the jobs are getting fewer, and um, and people are cutting their reviews because it is really a public service. It doesn't necessarily make business sense. It's a really expensive endeavor. You have to pay somebody a salary and then all their benefits. And then, you know, you also have to put all this money into giving them a budget. And do you make that money back? Um, Could you make that money back another way by just putting up a bunch of clickbait top 10 lists every single day, which, you know, LA Weekly is guilty of. We do both. (laughs) But I'm not sure that it makes um, short-term financial sense for media outlets to do it. Long-term, I think it does. It gives you so much more credibility. And I don't think that stuff like, you know, the 99 Essential Restaurants in LA list that Jonathan started and I now do would have anywhere near the kind of pull um, for advertising money or for chefs to show up at our events or whatever um, if there wasn't a name behind it that people trust. And I actually saw that the first year I was here when nobody knew who I was. Um, And Jonathan had just left and it was seen as a great blow to the weekly to have lost Mm. him. Chefs didn't want to come to our event because they were like, you know, before you could be like, Jonathan Gold invites you and you're going to say yes, you know. But if it was just like, hey, LA Weekly is having this event, can you bring some free food? People didn't want to do it. And I had to work really hard to um, make sure that they knew the following year that that it was um, that I was trying to honor them that you know all of those things but then my name carried a little more weight and I think that that helped a lot so criticism I think is endangered Um, I think there are a few people in the country who will never um, be in danger of not having some kind of platform. Um, but there's, it's it's fewer and fewer people, certainly. Well, your name carries a lot of weight, um, and also because you're not afraid to tackle like some really tough subjects. I mean, recently you wrote something about, are food critics too white? Yeah. Yeah, and that was in response to um, a writer in town, Bill Esparza, who's very smart and um, knows, you know, more than anybody, probably anywhere about Mexican food in the LA, certainly. And he was saying that, you know, um, people didn't understand critics in this town, me and Jonathan, because that's pretty much the only two real, like, critics at publications that there are, um, don't understand modern Mexican food. Um, And he based it on two reviews that we did of the same restaurant. Um, I actually think that in that instance, both of us were right about that restaurant. But I didn't want to get into a sparring match with him over it, especially because I believe very deeply as a white person that when somebody of color is saying that they feel misrepresented or underrepresented or anything to do with race, that the main thing that we can do is to listen and not to say, oh, you're wrong. I do know about Mexican food. Like that almost is beside the point. The fact that those chefs feel like they aren't being understood is more about the fact that there aren't that many voices of Latino, you know, knowledge um, in the food writing world and certainly not in the criticism world. And I had looked into a couple years ago um, why there were so many more f- male critics than female critics. Um, and it was a little bit crazy to me, the, the imbalance there. But it's nothing compared to the racial imbalance. I mean, I struggle to think of 
anybody that is a critic who isn't white. I mean, there are a couple, but it's very hard to find. I thought that was the best part about that piece is like, it was more like, I'm listening to you. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the important, that is the most important thing you can do, I think, is to say you are being heard. That there is, you know, nothing I can say is going to take away from the fact that people of color are underrepresented in right. most things but in this thing massively and and that argument wouldn't even come up so much if there was more representation in the food writing world so that people were talking from a, a place of, of cultural knowledge and not just um, that yeah I've eaten a bunch in Mexico but I, I'm, not, I'm not Latina so I'm never going to be able to see it from um, the same place that somebody like Bill would So getting right into it then how do you feel about this hot topic? Hot topic. Oh. We should have a, a- uh, overlay graphic uh, there or something yeah, we need the um, sound of sure. cultural appropriation and, and this sort of story about the Mexican uh, the, chefs in Portland. Portland. Yeah. 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 Um, it's something that I've thought about a ton and really grappled with a lot in terms of, um, especially when Pac Pac came to LA, mm-hmm. um, which was so interesting because uh, obviously Andy Ricker has done so much for Thai food and um, is really respected for a lot of good reasons. And LA really rejected him in a way that I think was... Um, fair and unfair because Mm. there's so much good Thai food in LA already and it's being cooked by Thai people and um, so they felt like he was coming in to try and like tell us about Thai food and we already knew about Thai food Um, I think that it really does matter how it's approached and how much kind of credit is given. I don't think that you could find many people. There are people out there who will say, you know, this food should only be cooked by people from that origin. But that's the far end of the way most people think about it, even people who are very passionate about, um, you know, the issue of appropriation. I think that the the real issue is, are you giving credit? Are you... Um, are you honoring the people who you got this um, knowledge from? Are you using your position of power to help lift those people up, or are you just, you know, taking the money and running? You know, right, right. and um, actually, that same writer Bill Espaza on Twitter a couple of days ago was talking about um, he has major beef with Rip Bayless, <laughs> and uh, he was saying it's not him cooking that food that makes him an appropriator. It's him um, claiming to be a spokesperson for that. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, listen, that's one I just have to, you know, I I do know Bill a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I also know Rick Bayless Mm -hmm. enough to know that he is one of the kindest, gentlest men that brings his staff to Oaxaca and I think is certainly a champion for not just the food, but, you know, all things Mexico. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a a really interesting conversation. And I was just in Tulum and that conversation around Noma Tulum was also fascinating and, you know... um, So what was that conversation? Conversation at Noma Tulum, which, yeah, by so the way, you're Noma's totally the, just uh, like bragging right now. Yeah, Noma's the traveling restaurant that, I, that popped up. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, yes, they're based in Copenhagen, but he's moving locations and he's now done it three times where he goes somewhere else in the world and kind of creates a restaurant out of nothing. And I went to Tulum without the intent of going to Noma. That's not why I was there. Um, but I You're just up, lurking. I, well, but you know somebody. I, and... Somebody I know knows somebody. <laughs> right, right. And, and I ended up there anyway. But um, Pete Wells of the New York Times just wrote a big article about why he wasn't going to review 
Noma Tulum, Jonathan Gold reviewed it in the LA Times, Tom Seatsum reviewed it in the Washington Post. And I had questions about like, why are you going to another country to review a restaurant that nobody can go to because it's sold out and it's only there for seven weeks? It 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 does feel a little bit beside the point. That's fair. Um, and Pete Wells had a lot of interesting things to say about why he wasn't going to do it. And a lot of that conversation is around... Um, why would you go to a country that is full of poverty and have a pop-up restaurant that costs $700 to go to? I have really mixed feelings about that. I mean, quite frankly, there are hotel rooms right next door that cost $700. Um, (laughs) You know, luxury by definition is something that people can't afford who don't have a ton of money. Um, For me, is that meal worth $700? Probably not, but only because I don't have $700. (laughs) If I had $700, sure, it would be, you know? And and I think that people look at food now as being this kind of populist movement and that idea of like, there are always going to be restaurants that most people can't afford everywhere in the Mm. world, just as there are diamond rings that you can't afford and hotel rooms that you can't afford and all kinds of stuff that you can't afford. So it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, location aside, I mean, listen, if your brand as a restaurant is big enough that you can now start filling up stadiums, so to speak, and traveling and taking the show on the road, I mean, that's what musicians do and other artists do. And, um, you know, I mean, a homegrown band doesn't just stay um, in their area. Right. They travel and perform in other places. I mean, I think it's kind of a, you know, outside of possibly... um, you know, taking advantage of other people. Right. I think it's an interesting uh, business. And and if there's anybody in the world who could really be like, yes, this is performance art more than it is dinner, mm-hmm. it would be Rene Redzepi. Yeah. He built that restaurant out of the jungle, out of nothing. He made the forks. Ooh, <laughs> you know, there was nothing in that restaurant except the champagne glasses that they didn't build themselves, including the kitchen. It was jungle. And that's, I mean, it's a its a piece of performance art and it's a piece of edible performance art. And, you know, whether you think that it's worthy or not is just like any other piece of art. And I wasn't, I, I, I did not eat at Noma Tulum. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, do you think people are criticizing it then as art or as food? Are there a lot of doubters in restaurants like these that are going in there to sort of want to say, oh, it was art, but it wasn't that delicious? I don't or- think that most, I think most people who ate there would get it. I think it's easy from a distance. And quite frankly, I have become pretty um, jaded myself about the very high end of dining. And it's been really interesting for me in the last year to eat at Noma and also at Attica in Melbourne, which is Mm -hmm. my hometown. Um, And those experiences are um, were both totally, totally different than the super high-end restaurants that I've eaten at here and in Europe. Um, and I felt at both of those that, okay, this is something different. This is not just how delicious is the steak, how much foie gras did they stuff into the, you know, it's not about luxury ingredients and kind of being too full and ordering expensive wine. It's an experience that you won't ever forget. And it's somebody's kind of narrative about place and time and culture. And um, and I've been uh, surprised that that was my reaction because I thought I would probably be like, this is dumb. But was it, was it, <laughs> Pastor Rodell, was it slutty enough? You were the first writer, I think, oh ever to God. use the word slutty well, in reference food to writer, food. Yeah. Yes. In reference to food. And it was like, you used someone, like, just one word that's just like, yes, yeah. gets it. Yeah. I, that's a kitchen word. I mean, that was uh, something, yeah. you know, I still have, uh, <laughs> I still 
still have some friends in the kitchen world. One of my good friends, Michelle Paulzine, who's a chef in San Francisco. Um, she, you know, she runs like a cafe that is supposed to be turn of the century Austrian cafe, but she'll still be, you know, a tomato salad. She'll be like, do her cooks, make it sluttier. You know, it's like one of those things where, and it's become, again, that has become a controversial thing in recent years. There's so much chatter in the food world, man. But uh, the editor of Bon Appetit tweeted something about slutty Chinese food. People thought that he was tra- he's talking about another culture. He's oh, talking, you know, he's a white dude and the, he's policing female sexuality, right. blah, blah. You know, it just like wow. okay. very quickly went. Right. Too much. Right. But um, I, you know, but it's a word that... Um, I cooks still, get it. Uh, yeah, cooks, cooks get, get it, it, and I still use it in my private life. I don't use, yeah. I don't use it in print anymore, partially because it's played out now. Because sure, sure. I was known for it, and I need to you not. Were, you yeah. were, it was legit, you know. Yeah, yeah you can't yeah. say that. It, yeah. it was the foam yeah. of the food writing world, yes. perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, bringing it down a little bit. So you're a food critic. How could you help someone, a regular person, who's in a new city and they want to go to a nice restaurant or they want to just walk into a place? What is a good food critic hack that maybe someone? Can can use to say, hey, you know, so like, I know I'm in a legitimate restaurant right. without having to jump on Twitter and say, where should I go or right. looking at a list. It's like a life hack. For um, if you're walking down a block and there's 10 restaurants, how would a critic know? Yeah, I bet you this that one's is such an interesting kind of question. Legit. I mean, I guess I look at the menus. Um, most have them in the door and, and look for one that doesn't have the same old stuff that everybody has. You know, I mean, the, we talk about the beet salad, yes. but like um, right now it's like, you know, uh, burrata on toast or whatever but um, I think I'm always just looking for an indication of a point of view you know that is not just this I think Ida put out that menu a couple years ago that was like here is every trendy restaurant menu which like, I love yeah, yeah, yeah which is great. hilarious and you know there are some great restaurants with that menu but for me um, I'm really looking for uh, a point of view but also if you walk in and somebody doesn't greet you pretty quickly I would say go away um <laughs> If it's kind of, you know, there are some restaurants you can just walk in and you feel the death in the room and it's bad. You know, it's empty and nobody's paying attention. Oh, and, it's so you know. hard to have a great experience at an empty restaurant, mm-hmm. which is always as a restaurateur the toughest thing because, yeah. you know, you're, not too many restaurants are filled it's at 5 p.m. Right. And like that energy transfers to your experience. I mean, it, it absolutely, absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I reviewed a restaurant a couple of weeks ago in Eagle Rock where they have the um, main dining room is upstairs and they have this beautiful storefront downstairs, which is where the bar area is. And they weren't seating anybody down there. And so you walk in you and you just feel like it's like a tomb. And I'm like, I put in the review, like, you need to put some people in the windows. (laughs) That was one of the first things I learned as a hostess, put people in the windows. Okay, so um, we're getting near the end of time, Besha Rodell. So at the end of the show, we're sort of talking about a a kitchen word called 86. Get it out of here. It's 86. Which means in the kitchen life, it means you're, yeah. you're done. The halibut's done. no longer available. We've sold out of it. So the what kids, are... Though, the kids use it as like you're 86 and something. Like it's just gone. Like right? it's gone. It's, right. It's, like we're out. It's done. It's um, I've also always wanted to have like the like a restaurant basketball team called the 86ers. I just thought it would be yeah. really cute. <laughs> yeah, like, I, that is I like cute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what are a few things in the food world that need to be 86 to you, that need to be just gone? Um, I, I struggle with this because I think... It, one of the most obnoxious traits of food writers is saying things that are tiny that annoy them when their life is pretty blessed. <laughs> um, but, okay, I'll go there, uh, understanding that um, I, I know it's annoying. Um, I, I'm so, I really would like the restaurant 
spiel the waiter spiel to die. Oh, yeah. um, and it's I feel as though we don't even know how to have that interaction anymore without mm. saying those words. Mm. It's so strange that you have to say, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'll be your servant right. tonight. These are small plates made for sharing. Can I explain the menu to you? Is this first time at the restaurant? Like, who cares? Like, nobody right. cares. Like, you right. could just okay. say, like, elephant, and they'd be like, uh-huh, and Moving. go on to the next thing. Yeah. It's it's such a weird script, and I feel like when I was waiting tables, when I loved the human interaction of it, and it, I think it was built to create that human interaction, and it has done the opposite. It's made it so that you actually can't have that interaction if you want it and you can't avoid it if you don't want it because if you're a server you should have emotional intelligence you should know does your table want to have the song and dance or do they want to be left alone you should be able to do either of those things you can't with the spiel so yeah now what about so that's on the server side are there any food trends or things that you're just done with 86 um let's see i mean I don't I, I would like to see a format that's a little I, I, I would like to move away from the small plates for everything format or at least just stop talking about it because that's how everybody eats now anyway um, I think that uni doesn't belong on toast um, the bread is too rough of a thing for, for sea urchin and, and overwhelms it um, and I would like to see monkfish come back Ooh, yeah. Oh, there you go. Wow, yeah. Even, on, was, the, even on the West Coast? I, like I, don't, I mean, uh, there was a time where it was everywhere, yeah. and monkfish is delicious, and I never see it anymore. That's true. Well, Unia, well, I have to go change my menu right now. <laughs> yeah, um, right, Best right Rodell, you also have a book coming out, right? I do. Soon? Yes, it, it's not coming out until next spring, but... Um, Title? Um, the title is still TBD. Awesome. Well, it's when tough. that book comes out, we have to get it yeah. um, for Looking sure. Forward to it. Yes. Um, you're writing for LA Weekly. Mm-hmm. Um, you're amazing. Listen, I'm offering this to you. Hopefully, you still want you want to come back. I hope you're the of first course. guest I would love on to. Starving for Attention. Um, so we'd love to have you come back. And um, speaking about 86ing, everyone, we are out of time. Thanks again to Besha Rodell, uh, producer Heather uh, Jasmine, who's sitting in in the sous chef role for today. Everyone at Podcast One, the crew at Oi Dios Mios for being such an early adopter uh, to. To the pod, uh, but most importantly, thanks to our listeners. We'll be back next week, and uh, until then, you can find us at Starving for Pod across all social media platforms, and also you can email us if you have any questions for me or Jasmine or producer Heather or for Besha Rodell at starvingforpod at gmail.com. Uh, and also, thanks to our listeners, and again, you can find us, you gotta go to Apple Podcast, and then you're gonna rate us, and you, you wanna rate us really good, because I think we've done a really great job. You wanna subscribe and do all of those things. Until next week, um, we'll speak to you soon. Stay hungry. Thanks for listening to Starving for Attention with Richard Blaze. Listen to new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or PodcastOne.com. The best in paranormal talk radio is here on Podcast One as part of the Jericho Network. Beyond the Darkness examines all aspects of the supernatural every day, Monday through Friday. And now, the same team behind Beyond the Darkness bring you the most frighteningly real-life dramas on True Crime Tuesday. Subscribe now by visiting darknessradio.com. Then, click the True Crime Tuesday banner. Again, that's True Crime Tuesday. Visit darknessradio.com and click the True Crime Tuesday banner. Subscribe now. At American University, we don't just hope for change, we create it. We don't just dream of a better world, we make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, 
you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.